0: You're listening to KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM, University of California listener-supported radio. And this is Method of the Madness coming at you from the Public Affairs Department here at Calix, celebrating the innovative spirit of the Bay Area and beyond. I'm your host, Ali Zar, and today we're lucky enough to have with us Professor John Clark from Boston University. Hello, Professor. How are you?
1: Hello. Good. Thanks for having me on.
0: And Professor Clark uh, happened to be here in Berkeley, and so we got him on the show to talk about um, an innovation of his that is now um, orbiting the planet Mars, the Echelle spectrograph. So we want to talk about this and learn a little bit more about it. But first, um, I always start the show talking to someone who's invented something with the same question. What was the problem statement that you were trying to solve?
1: Uh, Okay, so this goes back quite a ways. Um, I trained as an astrophysicist, and I build experiments to fly into space and try to analyze the data to answer particular questions. Uh, The system that is flying now at Mars addresses one question. But it started about 25 years ago. Um, I was using another telescope to look at the atmosphere of Jupiter. And there was something that we didn't understand. And we used that instrument in an unusual way that it wasn't designed really to do. And we were able to figure out what was going on there. So I got the idea. And then I built a prototype for this uh, shell spectrograph. Um, to fly basically on a test bed, on a rocket that just goes up into space and comes right back down. You only get about five minutes of data. That's called a sounding rocket. So let me back up a step. A spectrograph is a device that disperses light into the different wavelengths, the spectrum of colors. And a usual, a normal spectrograph would have a certain resolution that refers to how much the light is spread out in wavelength. And a shell is a particular kind of system that uses a different kind of dispersing optic, called an a shell grating, and it spreads the light out a lot more than a usual system. And to do that, you only get a look at a small part of the color spectrum, but you get a very good resolution on the different colors or wavelengths.
0: Now, are there different – can it see all parts of the spectrum, just basically what it's trained on, or is it only a certain part of the spectrum that it can see? Is there a specific thing you're looking for with the uh, magnification it gives you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can do an analogy here. If you were up on – Grizzly Peak, looking toward Mount Tamalpais, a low-resolution system would see from Mount Tam to San Francisco. And a shell would zoom in on the peak of Mount Tamalpais and get good resolution on that but not be able to see anything else. Ah,
0: okay. So the problem statement of the shell spectrograph is to get deeper into the analysis of certain parts of the atmosphere by exactly. magnifying it? Is exactly. that right?
1: It actually magnifies the spectrum, the color spectrum, rather than the atmosphere itself.
0: So, as a as a scientist, um, when you you uh, recognize the need for this, um, how do you go about you know starting to build something like this? And now you started this twenty five years ago. So right. I want to kind of go through the story and understand how we've gotten from there to here. But when you first understood, wow, there's a need for this, how do you go about it? Do you have to go get grant funding or how does that work?
1: Well, yeah, you start out writing a proposal and maybe calling the person at NASA who would be able to fund you, have a conversation about whether they would be uh, like to see this kind of a, of a proposal. Hmm. And I did that when I was an assistant professor back in the late 80s. And uh, they agreed, and then it took several years to develop the system and fly it. And it flew several times on these sounding rockets before we had the opportunity to propose it for this mission to Mars. Hmm.
0: So uh, taking a step back real quick, so let's talk a little bit about your background. So you're an astrophysicist. Where did you uh, do your studies?
1: Well, I went undergraduate at Denison University in Ohio. I went grad school in physics at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And from Hopkins, I came out to Berkeley to the Space Sciences Lab up on the hill for my first job after grad school.
0: And what were you st- What were you doing up there? I the was hill? doing
1: the same general kind of thing I'm doing now, but I was doing it from ground based telescopes. I spent a lot of time at Lick Observatory on Mount Hamilton mm. in the South Bay.
0: Okay, and so uh, from that point, you got you became an assistant professor, and you saw you were working with uh, uh, a telescope that was looking at Jupiter. Is that
1: right? Yeah, so this was a NASA facility that was in a very high orbit around the Earth. It's called the International Ultraviolet Explorer. And that's where I got the idea from Jupiter, and then I realized I could apply the same kind of instrument to other planets and other problems.
0: And so um you started to build it. You did some space flights or I'm sorry some um some space test flights, yeah. Space test space flights to right. test the feasibility of it. And um And this seems like it was a—it's like a kind of a lifetime project, right? You're you're going about and you know teaching and doing your regular stuff. This is a long-term project. So, take us from the time that you start doing the sample flights to now—it's on the this latest. Um, mission to Mars so tell us about that process how do you get from kind of these samples to actually getting it on to I'm sure lots of scientists are trying to bolt things on to something that's going to go orbit Mars
1: yeah it's very competitive Um, and this is not the only thing I was doing research wise but it was one thing kind of on the back burner for a while Um, in 2005 I joined a small group of people from University of Colorado and from Berkeley who were planning to propose for a small relatively small mission to Mars um, so we started meeting in 2005. Uh, it was accepted in 2008, and it was launched in 2013, and it arrived at Mars this past September, and we're now getting data back. So it's a long process. There's no guarantee it's going to go, and there's no guarantee it's going to work, even if it's funded and and they agree to launch it.
0: So what is so this is it's called the Maven, right? The right. Um, the uh, it, and it, exactly what is the uh, the Mars Maven?
1: MAVEN is a mission, it's an acronym, stands for Mars Atmosphere Volatile Evolution Experiment. So this is basically a global climate change mission for Mars to try to learn about how Mars has evolved over its lifetime, in what ways it may be similar to the Earth or have been similar to the Earth when it was young. And in a nutshell, we think that Mars started out like the Earth, oceans of water, there is a lot of evidence on the surface of Mars today. You can see what looks just like river channels and flowing patterns. But it's dry. It's very dry today. Any water that's there is locked up in the polar ice caps or maybe into the surface itself, like a permafrost. So the purpose of MAVEN is to not land. There's no um, rover on MAVEN. It's orbiting around and through the atmosphere of Mars and trying to figure out the detailed physical principles by Which the atmosphere of Mars is changing today, and then we could extrapolate back in time and understand what Mars was like in the past.
0: So, is the hypothesis that um, we can um, try to understand better how to head off our own potential losing our oceans by studying Mars? Or, what, what's the is, is there that much of an analog that we can draw between that planet and our planet?
1: Well, you're painting a very particular picture there, and we're looking more at a big picture. If We want to understand how planets in general work. We'd like to understand Mars. That could teach us something about the Earth. We're not really trying to save the Earth by sending a mission to Mars. Uh, we'd like to understand more of these principles to understand these exoplanets that are being found today around other stars.
0: Yeah, and tell us about those exoplanets. What are, what are those that are being found today? These new discoveries,
1: right? There are new discoveries. The... Um, technique by which these are found is the reflex motion of the star response to the gravity of the planet. So the first ones that were found were giant planets that were very close to the star. And now as the method improves, we're finding smaller planets farther away. We're not yet at the point of finding an Earth, but it's getting close.
0: So we're, we're speaking with Professor John Clark uh, um, from uh, Boston University, who's uh, luckily here in Berkeley, to talk to to us about uh, the Shell spectrograph that he has developed that is on the Mars Maven um, and is uh, helping to analyze the atmosphere of Mars. So I have one, you know, as a layman who knows nothing about this stuff, there's one thing I don't understand at all is the time lag between information being gathered by Maven and coming back to Earth, like how long does that take?
1: Uh, well, it's minutes. It's not hours. Um, it's uh, on the order of maybe 10 minutes. It varies a lot depending on where mi- the uh, Mars and the Earth are in their orbits around the Sun. The distance can change dramatically um, from one time of the year to another.
0: What's the mechanism through which the information is sent?
1: It's just a radio transmitter, just like Calx, <laughs> uh, a little more. Well, not probably not more powerful, but it's beamed back toward the Earth, and there are large dishes on the Earth that pick up the signal. So we send commands to the spacecraft, and we get the data down the same way.
0: Wow! So it's 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 um, much faster than I would have thought. I would have like you hear about like these telescopes that go into deep space, and you know they're sending images back, but you don't even know if that telescope still exists. But I guess this is totally different. Mars is not closer. that far away. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, what are the? It's, it's been orbiting Mars for the last six months or so. Right. Correct. So what? What? What are? What are, what are you guys finding?
1: Um, We're just uh, still in the early phases of of learning about Mars. When you first get a mission to another planet like this one, the first thing you do is turn everything on and test it out. And you test your ability to command it, to have the onboard computer do things in the right order and at the right time. And there's always a process of a few months where you understand how it works and, and, and fix things, basically. Um, fortunately, Maven is working very well. There have been some little hiccups, but basically everything's working. Uh, we've been get, getting data back, and we're now getting into more of a routine mode, where we do the same thing every orbit around Mars, and then we can build up measurements over the course of a Mars year—a Mars orbit around the Sun—and start to understand some of these physical principles.
0: So, um, the uh, and how long is a Mars year?
1: Mars year is about two Earth years.
0: Two Earth years. So, and is there a, a expected lifespan of the Maven? Um, uh, is is it just called? It's it's a satellite it mission or spacecraft? Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. It is a satellite. Um, it's expected to last for five to ten years. It's built to last a long time. The prime mission for Maven is one Earth year around Mars, but we expect that it would be continued for a second Earth year to get one full Mars orbit around the sun. And the science team would like to go longer than that.
0: And so, how does like your involvement? Because you have one part portion of it. Yeah. Um, how um, how does it work? Is. Do you have like a I – don't, I don't suppose you have like an iPhone app that's giving you data. I mean where do you guys collect the information and is it – can you be constantly harvesting the information from your computer or is there different feeds coming? Well, it's coming? not an
1: iPhone. It's an Airbook. Yeah. <laughs> but it is okay. an Apple. Nice. Um, I mean the data come down. They go to the Lockheed's plant south of Denver and then they come to the science centers. And I would like to point out that the lab at Berkeley, the Space Sciences Lab – built several of the instruments that are on Maven, mm-hmm. and several of the instruments were built at the University of Colorado, and I have one channel of one instrument built in Colorado.
0: Okay. And so your, your channel is the Shell Spectrograph, Achelle spectrograph. Is, which yeah. is uh, sending back data. And what exactly in the atmosphere is the Shell Spectrograph looking at in Mars?
1: That's a good question. The Shell Spectrograph was designed to measure the ratio of deuterium to hydrogen in the upper atmosphere of Mars. So deuterium is like heavy water. It's a, a proton with a neutron in it and it has twice the mass of a hydrogen atom. Um, the the quick picture here is that when Mars was young, we think it had a lot of water. We think a lot of that water boiled off into space. The gravity of Mars is only about one quarter of the gravity of the Earth. So we think it lost a lot of its atmosphere.
0: It just floated away?
1: Well it didn't float, some of the atoms have enough velocity and their head pointing up, they can escape the gravity. It's a small fraction. But if that happened and water was lost, water would break up into hydrogen and oxygen. And about one in uh, 10 or 100,000 of those hydrogens would be deuterium. Now, the hydrogen would boil off faster than the deuterium because it's half the mass. So if you lost a lot of water over time, there'd be more deuterium. And the ratio of those two gives you an idea of how much water was lost over the history of the planet.
0: How long do you think it'll take to to um, collect enough data for you to have enough to do your extrapolation that you want to make?
1: Well, we have a, a quick look now. We know that it's working. We're measuring deuterium and hydrogen. Now we get down into the gritty details of exactly how you analyze that and how accurately you can pin down um the numbers but we don't want to just measure deuterium to hydrogen at one time we want to look at mars at different latitudes over the course of its seasons and find out if there are variations in the amount of deuterium in the atmosphere now as an
0: astrophysicist um, what is your um, opinion of you know it seems like the nasa has shifted years under obama one of his big acts was to stop the space shuttle program and focus on uh, more of these types of scientific endeavors. Is this the right move for for us to be doing right now, is going further out and looking at Mars and potentially further uh, exploration?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you ask a scientist, they'll say that robotic exploration is the way to go. It's much less expensive. You don't put anybody's life at risk. And um, we can build very good instruments to send to the other planets. But a lot of people also believe in and support um, human spaceflight and getting away from low-Earth orbit. And that's another thrust of the current uh, NASA space program.
0: So, uh, And so the robots, like with well, those rovers on Mars, and, and, and MAVEN is communicating with those rovers, right?
1: Uh, it's not. It's just communicating with the Earth.
0: Oh, okay. I thought yeah. that there was a relay. Was there's ability for it to relay information. Ah, right. So you're ahead of me here. So <laughs>
1: MAVEN was built by NASA with a relay so that in the future, after the MAVEN science is more or less complete, um, they will change the orbit and then use the MAVEN spacecraft to relay data from landers on the ground back to the Earth hmm. in both directions. After
0: its kind of primary or first mission is exactly. complete. Right. So uh, tell tell me a little bit, you know, and we're talking to Professor John Clark from Boston University, who is a part of the uh, Mars MAVEN team, about the mission to Mars and the Shell spectrograph, which he invented to help uh, understand the atmosphere of Mars and climate change on Mars. So tell us a little bit about um, just the the scale of building something like a satellite that goes to Mars to figure out this problem. Like We talked a little bit about it, but how long does it take? How many people are involved? This seems like a really big endeavor.
1: It is a big endeavor. We started out in 2005 with maybe a dozen, 15 people around the table thinking about how we'd write the proposal. Um, it ended up with probably at one point a hundred, two hundred people um, working on developing the spacecraft and the instruments and testing them. Uh, the instruments were built at different labs around the country, um, and then they were put together at Lockheed's plant south of Denver. The whole thing was tested, um, and there's a lot of testing that goes on um, with these missions because it's uh, you know you launch these things, you can't go back if anything goes wrong. It's like building a car. To last for ten years without ever changing the oil or filling the gas tank, and you know things can go wrong, um, so there's, there's very thorough testing on these things.
0: What's the failure rate of these types of? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that the level of testing is beyond what anybody could really imagine, but is what's the failure rate of these types of missions?
1: Well, if you run it long enough, something will fail, 100. <laughs> <100%. laughs> yeah. percent But what you want to do is make sure that it's built to last longer than what you need it to do. And NASA's gotten very good at this. Um, Lockheed builds very good spacecraft. NASA builds very good instruments. The, um, so you think about a timeline for these things and how long they're going to go. And um, I'm thinking of, a, of an anecdote. I worked for NASA when I was younger, and I was at the uh, Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, where Wernher von Braun um, worked, and they still told stories about him. And they asked him, how do you make these, these rockets, you know, How do you make them work? It's very risky, hard to do. He said, well, we design it and we build it, and then we test it until it breaks, and then we figure out what went wrong, and we test it again. And we do that until it doesn't break, and then it's ready to fly. (laughs) So it's the testing program that's more important than trying to figure out everything that can go wrong.
0: Yeah, and so I'm I'm a software developer, so I understand testing software and coming up with, you know, unit tests and system tests and, right. and really, really running through that rigor. But I would think that the level of rigor on something like this must be much, much um, greater than, than I could imagine. Is there a certain protocol that, you know, NASA puts everything that's going to go into space through that, you know, it has to pass, you know, 50 million checklists or whatever it is, or how does that work?
1: Right. There is a protocol. You will um, test it by vibrating the instrument, simulating the vibration of launch. You'll put it through a temperature cycle, hot and cold, more than the range you think will experience in space. You have to put it in a vacuum to simulate the vacuum of space. There are all kinds of things like that. But the other trick that the aerospace industry and NASA use is to try to use things that have flown before that worked Mm. and not try something that's brand new. You know, improve the technology gradually and not just start from scratch.
0: So So there's learnings from the 1960s missions, that are kind of baked in to just continually improve, improve, improve?
1: Yeah, but there's probably not much left from the 60s, <laughs> I hope, but it is a gradual process. Yeah, yeah.
0: interesting. Okay. Well, um, you know, one one question that I wanted to ask you about is uh, the, there's a certain um, – it, it seems like, the, you know, our um, – Humanity's race into space has evolved quite a bit. You know, if I harken back to the '60s, you had a big competition, right? But now it seems like there's a lot more collaboration. Is that is that from an, from a layman's perspective, that's the way it looks? Is that accurate? Or we have I this, think that's accurate. We yeah. have this one international space station that everybody kind of shares. And um, so, is there other other countries involved on the Maven, or is it this is a, a NASA only? We have
1: several European co-investigators, scientific co-investigators. That's correct. Yeah. And uh, we have a couple of people from Japan who are participating in the science. Uh, but there's still somewhat of a competition between nations, okay? The, uh, the Chinese are trying to do things on their own without getting help from other countries. And uh, I think that if China landed on the moon, that might help us in terms of getting this country behind, going back and, and doing more things in space.
0: So do you think that there's still much to explore on the moon? We've, we've kind of given up that uh... – before we, we've we given up that mission, before we really figured out everything that we should have?
1: Well, to me, we've learned a lot about the moon, and we should be moving on and doing other things. Um, but I support um, human um, spaceflight. Um, I personally suspect that the future of human spaceflight is more in private companies. It might be SpaceX, Elon Musk going to Mars um, before the government does. And partly I say that just because Companies are willing to take on more risk and do things less expensively than the government is.
0: Yeah, and and uh, and be more disruptive, but potentially be um, more dangerous. You know, that that's the scary part of that too. Is that what kind of? There's probably no regulation of space spaceflight, or maybe there is. I don't know.
1: Well, the more risk you take, the more accidents there will be. I think that's true, and I expect that things will go wrong. Um, But we know a lot already in terms of building rockets and flying things, launching things into space. And private companies today can take advantage of that history of knowledge and hopefully um, things will go well. But in the early days of aviation, there were accidents and people got hurt, but they kept going. And that's, I think, the kind of spirit that you need to have.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, all great explorers. They're all going to you encounter take risk. yeah, yeah. serious risks with uh, life and limb. Yeah, um, So we're, we're speaking with Professor John Clark from Boston University here at KLX Berkeley 90.7 FM. He's a part of the Mars Maven team. Uh, it's a satellite that's now orbiting Mars that is um, uh, sending back information about the atmosphere and climate change on that planet. Um, and Professor Clark also teaches uh, actively teaches at Boston University. What what are you teaching there right now?
1: I'm in the Department of, of Astronomy. I teach planetary science, uh, intro astronomy, all the way from non-science major undergraduates to advanced grad students.
0: Okay. Well, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, as someone who's studied this as a career, what is the, um, you know, in our lifetime, we were to say like the next 50 years, what would you say are the big milestones in terms of space exploration that are attainable for us as a race?
1: Wow, 50 years is kind of a long horizon, um, and it's hard to predict. I, th- I expect that robotic missions will continue to fly over that time period. Um, I think that human spaceflight will develop. There are a lot of people who have decided that Mars is the place for human beings to go next. It's, um, it's very risky. There's a lot of questions about radiation, about keeping people healthy. Um, it's not going to be an easy thing to do, but I can see that happening. In less than 50 years. Really? Yeah. Now, another thing that I find more interesting in the shorter term, like 10-ish years, is these these things like Virgin Galactic, where they're building ways to take people up into space and come right back down. And I think that um, a lot of people alive today will have the choice. uh, The cost will come down as they do it more and more. I think they'll have the choice of buying a car or flying in space. It'll be at that cost level.
0: But flying in space is on a lark just to experience zero gravity or to actually go from one part of the planet to the other?
1: So when I go into a room with a bunch of students, I ask them, if you could spend 20K in flying in space, how many of you would do it? And I wait about three seconds, and then I say, if your hand isn't up, you're not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> if you're thinking about whether it's a good idea, yeah. you're not the ones who will be on these first flights.
0: So it's going to be some kind of a... Uh, something for the uber rich kind of like to say yeah, you know, I've been in space that kind of thing
1: a lot of people can afford to buy a car and they might prefer to ride the bus and have the experience of flying in space
0: yeah interesting okay um, what about um, as we find these more exoplanets um, what is your what is your feeling on what's out there is there is there life out there that we're going to be um, able to I know it's the million dollar question but you're yeah, someone yeah. who's studied this your whole career probably so what's your feeling
1: Um, Well, I I won't give you any feelings, but I've thought about it. (laughs) We see so many other stars, so many other galaxies, and now we're finding so many planets around nearby stars. It's become clear that most stars have planets around them. They're very common. They're just, if you look at the numbers, there are going to be so many of them out there that there have to be a lot of them that are similar to the Earth. And there may be forms of life that we have not dreamt of that could be on other kinds of planets. So if you just look at the numbers, the odds are there's life all over the universe. So that's the good news. Now, the other news is that as far as we know, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. And at that speed, there may be life all over the universe, and we'll never find it just because of the distance. Um, it's going to be hard. It may, it may be close by. Okay, I'm not saying it's impossible. But most of it we will probably never be in contact with.
0: Do you think we'll ever be able to really know you know, explain it. I mean, this is the big question. You know, you have like religion versus science, and there's this big, you know, leap of faith. You kind of have to take either way. Like you're saying, there's probably out there, but how are we ever going to know? I mean, unless they come, someone does. Can't travel faster than the speed yeah. of light and show up in our doorstep.
1: Well, what I described is what we understand today. Now, I'm willing to change my mind at the drop of a hat. <laughs> <laughs> you're a scientist. <laughs> and it's so. been, it's been, you know, very dangerous to assume that you know too much uh, throughout history.
0: Yeah. You know, I always think about, um, as again, someone who's not an astrophysicist, about uh, Star Trek, which is a lot of my in, uh, understanding of this. And they have the um, the premise that there's higher um, forms that are watching us, waiting for us to be able to unlock some secrets of interstellar travel. Yeah. And once we do, then they show up and say, OK, you know, now you have to learn how to responsibly travel. And, yeah. you know, perhaps that's a... Uh, that's out there because there's potential to have so many different kinds of life forms out there so
1: it's fun to think about and there's a lot we don't know but another thing that scientists talk about is a thing called the fermi paradox enrico fermi decades ago said if there's other life in the universe where is it how come we don't know about it why haven't they come here and contacted us and that's a different way of looking at the same question
0: yeah. So um, uh, in closing with Professor John Clark here from Boston University on KLX Berkeley 90.7 FM, if you were to kind of wave your magic wand and get your wildest dreams from this Maven exploration and the Shell spectrograph that you put on it, what would you what would you find out? What would be the big you know, victory for you?
1: We would learn um, everything we need to know about the escape of water into space from Mars to be able to go back three billion years and know what Mars was like when it was young. Was Mars Earth-like, and for how long? Was it Earth-like long enough for life to begin on Mars? Uh, questions like that.
0: All right. Well, hopefully we'll find that out. And it's, not, it's going to be pretty quick, like in the next couple of years, right, is the, the Absolutely. Mission. Great. Well, uh, best of luck. Thanks so much for the exploration you're doing for all of us. Hopefully we'll all get to learn about it. And you can follow um, Mars Maven. There's a page on NASA, I believe, that you can you can just Google right. uh, Maven and you will see that. And thanks so much for joining us, Professor. It was a pleasure. Okay. Thank you.